Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm here on my own. My colleague, Paul Rickard, is still swanning around Europe, the lucky so-and-so, but I'm sure he'll be back next week. On today's show, we've got... Look, I've, I've got to say to you, I am just so cheesed off with all these headlines in the newspapers, on TV, on radio, in, on and in websites, telling us about this Armageddon of house prices that lies ahead of us. And people are actually coming up to me asking, yeah, well, are house prices going to fall 40%? The answer is no, they won't. There could be a suburb where it could happen. I don't think it will happen, but it's possible. But that suburb probably has experienced uh, a price rise of 120% over the last four or five years. And so 40% doesn't really mean much at all unless you bought just very recently. But to clear it up, I'm going to a guy who's been very good at predicting house prices on the way up. Often he's been out of kilter with other um, forecasters. His name is Louis Christopher. He's from SQM Research. Uh, and Louis's a, a, a very reliable um, forecaster of property prices and understands the market really well. So Louis's coming up on the program, and I, I hope I can hose down all these ridiculous fears about a house price collapse. Then we'll have Margaret Lomas from Destiny Financial. And Margaret's going to tell us, a, how to avoid to buy a dud property, but if you've got one, how you get rid of it. And then Dr. Ross Walker, the cardiologist, who appears both on my TV shows and on our website, particularly Weekend Switzer. And we're going to talk about five changes you should embrace to basically make you feel better. And I would argue if you feel better, you're positioning yourself for success. People who have anxiety and negativity generally aren't the people who develop or manufacture success for themselves. So let's get, the, get, let's get your head right to make sure that you're in a position to really benefit from those sorts of goals that you might be setting yourself. That's the program for today. And without any further ado, let's kick off with my interview with Louis Christopher from SQM Research. Welcome to the program, Louis. Good to be here, Peter. Now, mate, have you ever seen the media ever so hungry for a house price property of a collapse in your entire lifetime? <laughs> yes, well, that there are sections of the media right now who, which are, um, yeah, they're, they're being a little bit sensational to say the least. Mm. Uh, and I think uh, listeners need just to be aware of that. Like the media, they're there to you know, report uh, sensationalism to try and gain attention. There's no question about that. That said, though, that the truth is is that in Sydney and Melbourne, housing prices are falling, mm. and that, that is definitely newsworthy information. Uh, so, mm. uh, but yeah, look, yeah, uh, there, there are different, definitely sections on the media which are taking this to an extreme. That's exactly sure. right. Okay, mate. So let's just not, not muck around. Let's let's deal with the, the the key cities that really look under pressure. 
Um, we saw Sydney house prices, I think the last public um, release was around 6% over the last 12 months. And I think Melbourne was down about 3.4%. Do your numbers roughly agree with that kind of um, development? I think the number from CoreLogic at 6% for Sydney sounds a little bit too... Uh, to down, uh, where, where we're recording numbers a little bit less than that, and ABS is also recording a, a number less than that, but we don't dispute or don't disagree that the market in Sydney is falling and mm. continues to fall even as we speak. Yeah. So, so therefore, I, I know I had uh, Rob Mellor from BIS Shrapnel on my TV show a, a few weeks back, and he was kind of expecting a, about a 5% fall in, in Sydney over, over yep. the 12 months, and I think ABS was pretty well around that, that mark. So, so let's agree that, okay, over the past 12 months, it's been about a 5 or 6% fall in Sydney. What have you got Melbourne at approximately? Yeah, so look, I would suggest Melbourne's down about 2%. Melbourne entered into this downturn about six months after Sydney. Hmm. Um, uh, and I regard the downturn in, in Melbourne as only just beginning. Okay. So I think that there's more price falls that come out of Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and we, we, we state that based on the fact that we think um, that there, there are more listings coming into the market in Melbourne. Uh, the market was quite overvalued at its peak. Uh, but that all said, though... Um, when we say there's going to be more price falls, we do not believe for a moment that we are talking about some type of massive house price crash that sections of the media believe um, is just around the corner. Mm. Uh, I think that's very unlikely. And, and the reason why I say that is because there are a number of safety valves in the market. And the powers of B really have quite a number of uh, levers they can pull and push to ensure we don't have that type of scenario playing out. Hmm. I guess one of them would be for APRA to, to go softer on investor loans and, and banks being able to lend to investors like better than, than we're seeing right now. Yes, that's right. And, and also, of course, mainly um, the Reserve Bank uh, still has some um, ability to cut interest rates. Good point. To actually mm. cut the cash rate. Mm. So at 1.5% in terms of the cash rate, they could easily take off 50 basis points just straight off top of a hat. Mm. Banks may not pass all that on, but they may well, most likely they'd pass on, say, 25 to 40 basis points of it. Mm. Uh, and that would assist the market, yep. in our view, would actually provide some confidence in the market, as it has done on previous cycles. Mm. So... Um, yeah, look, I, I, and then on top of that, you've got the federal government, and I, and I strongly believe this, that both sides of the House are not interested in a house price crash. Yes, <laughs> Labor wants to get rid of negative gearing, and they recognise that would mean more affordable housing, in other words, further price falls, mm. but I don't think they want to see a crash. Mm. And so my view is that if you were to see a scenario where it's starting to look like it's a crash, you would see uh, the government of the day bringing things such as a first-time owner's grant scheme again or, mm. or other schemes to try and stimulate demand. Yeah. Now, let's go to the next 12 months. So you've got Sydney yep. around five or six, Melbourne two. Um, what about next 12 months for Sydney? I think uh, next year it is going to be a market where you're going to see investors staying quite cautious. Yeah. 
and that is because the, the, the year is going to be all about the election. Yeah. And for uh, the industry, the property industry itself, it's very much all about what's going to happen to negative gearing. Yeah. Uh, so investors at this point in time will be starting to think of next year and what it would mean if we were to see a situation where negative gearing were completely repealed. Yeah. Uh, now, our view is, and we've, we did a lot of research on this when Labor first announced this back in 2015, 2016, um, is that uh, taking away negative gearing, um, in the long run, we think it's good to have some tax reform in the property sector. But how you go about doing it, you've got to be cautious. And if we were to see that negative gearing um, uh, policy coming in terms of a complete repeal, uh, you would see further falls in the market, mm. in our view. Uh, I don't think it would translate into a crash once again. Uh, but uh, on our modelling, when we did in 2016, it, it was basically amounting to the fact that the market could fall by about 4 to 6%. So... Uh, there is that possibility that, yes, it, it could add to uh, the falls in the current downturn we're already having. Mm. And so that's the reason why I'm thinking investors are probably going to be very cautious next year. Yep. So if you to, to put a number on it, Sydney, another 5% or 10%? Oh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't rule out another 5% down for Sydney. Okay. Um, and and so, Melbourne? So I, I'd say... We'd be getting up to five percent, I think. As mentioned, Melbourne's mm. about six months behind Sydney, yep. so uh, I think it's very likely we're going to see an annual decline in the order of five to six percent for Melbourne as well. Yes. Uh, so, uh, having those two cities falling at you know five to six percent per annum, mm. uh, I think you know the Reserve Bank's going to take note of that, and I think it's very unlikely if. if that scenario does play out next year that the, the RBA would lift rates in that type of environment. Okay. Um, uh, you and I have talked in the past and we kind of it thought that Brisbane eventually will come good. Um, and I think the last number I saw, they were marginally positive. Do you, yes. think, do you think Brisbane can defy the, the falls in Sydney and Melbourne and keep creeping up? Yes, I can, and I think it, most likely it will. Uh, on our numbers... Um, the oversupply of CBD apartments that we've been, uh, that's been recorded in Brisbane, uh, we, we've got through the worst of that now. So on our numbers, rental vacancy rates in Brisbane have been falling for about seven straight months. Right. Uh, and so we're, 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 we're seeing that downturn behind us now in the Brisbane rental market. Mm. Now, there's still some surplus stock there that needs to be absorbed, but it's being absorbed at a quicker rate. And the reason why that is going on, Peter, is that we're seeing more southerners from Melbourne and Sydney moving into southeast Queensland. Mm. Uh, so state or interstate migration has really picked up in Queensland's favour over the last two years. Uh, and so underlying demand for uh, real estate in terms of just accommodation mm. has, has really picked up. And we think that's set to continue because the price gap between Sydney and Melbourne house prices versus Brisbane house prices, is that gap's at nearly at an all-time high at the moment. Yeah, that's a great sign. Um, WA, has it... Um, I know a lot of people have been saying, I think even, even six months ago, you might have said to me, probably around the bottom. Is it still around the bottom or is it starting to sneak up? Yeah, look, the, the, the bottom's been uh, hanging in there for a while. Mm. Um, 
We can say rental vacancy rates in Perth have been now falling for about the last five months, mm. but they're still elevated. So in the CBD, you're still going to get a rental vacancy rate of about 4.5% in Perth itself, yep. which is elevated, but it's been coming down. Uh, it's, it's, it's in the process of bottoming, I yeah. think we could say, Peter. Yeah. The rate of falls has definitely slowed right down. Yeah. And so, you know, we're either at the bottom or we're very close to the bottom. But there's still risks in the market there in Perth, and that is, of course, is we were to have some type of major global trade war. That would be bad for the global commodities yeah, market, yeah. and that would affect Perth. And I think investors have got that in the back of their mind. And so people are still cautious about that market. But I, I do personally think the worst is now behind us when it comes to, to the Perth housing market. Okay, so just quickly, uh, uh, Hobart's done very well um, recently, big rises. They're coming off yes. the boil, surely, because the, the, the rises have been fantastic. The rises have been huge for, for Hobart over the past four years. We're talking about dwelling prices mm. rising on, uh, from trough to current levels of about 35%. Uh, the rental market's really taken off. And the reason why this has happened in Hobart, it's because of the, the local economy. Um, it's been very well managed by the state government over the past five years. Uh, that combined with a lower Australian dollar compared to where we were in the commodities boom mm. has helped Hobart big time. And so there's been an improvement in job creation. Uh, and then once again, the standard living differential between Hobart and the mainland cities has encouraged owner-occupiers to consider the city in terms of living there. Uh, and on top of that, construction. Developers will barely be able to, you know, have been barely building in Hobart for many years mm. now. It's been an area which is regarded as being off-limits, and so that's really constrained new supply in the city. Mm. Um, and all that means that we've had record low rental vacancy rates in that city and increasing investor demand for investment stock. Okay, one last one, because I know you're running short of time, mate, is I figure one of the, the great supporters of the Australian housing market is the fact that our population growth is extraordinary, well over 300,000 people a year. Does that put a bit of a safety net under house prices in places like Sydney and Melbourne where most of the, the new population goes to? Yes, it's definitely been one of the safety valves in the marketplace. Uh, no question about that. And hey, if you need, if you have more people, and those people have the ability to buy a property, that generally creates strong underlying demand. Mm. Uh, no question about that. I think if uh, um, population levels in Sydney and Melbourne were flat right now, the downturn would be worse than what we're having. Uh, so I think it is already creating a buffer. Uh, that's not necessarily mean that I personally agree with very, very strong population mm. growth levels. I do think it needs to be managed, mm. but there's no doubt it, it's creating a buffer in the market right now. Louis Christopher, thanks again for your insights, mate. Thank you, Peter. There's nothing worse than buying a property and hanging on and not seeing any capital gain. And it's even worse if you're not getting a really good rent or yield. Margaret Lomas from Destiny Financial reckons that you've got to get rid of dud properties. So let's have a talk about how you go about getting rid of a dud property and how you can pick whether you've actually got one of those. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, Margaret, let's just go through a story that you wrote recently on our website, switzer.com.au, when you talked about getting rid of dud properties. 
Um, now, now, yes. now, how many people suffer from that kind of problem in your experience? Surprisingly, a lot more than you would think, and many of them have a dud property as a result of taking advice. I'm taking advice from a sponsor who uh, had a vested interest in them buying that property or not learning how to do the research first and buying according to what they wrongly thought was a gut feeling that just didn't turn out. So, you know, you and I talk about this a lot. People, when they buy property as an investment, seem to think that because they live in it, because they've been in it all their lives, that they have this some kind of a, you know, an instinct when it comes to picking property. And so people just go and buy the, the house down the road and think, yeah, I'd live there, so it should be a good investment. And don't even think about things like, is the population there to support growth in the property? Uh, is the infrastructure there? And are those growth drivers there? So a lot of people have dud properties. Okay, so let's imagine we do have a dud property. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people just hang in there and think, oh, eventually it'll change. A, what yeah. is your view on that? And B, when I, pre- I presume you're going to say, no, you don't hang on to it. How do you get rid of a dud property? Okay, so there's a whole lot of things that we have to address before we talk about getting rid of that dud property, and that is recognising whether it is a dud property in the first place. Mm. Um, and look, sometimes that dud property could be just a result of bad timing and it might actually get better in the future. So to me, a dud property is one that is either often not occupied, so you struggle to get a tenant. And when you do get a tenant, the quality of your tenants might not be so good. Maybe they cause some damage. Maybe you frequently have tenants that cause damage. Um, Maybe you have a property that's always costing you a lot of money or even a property that might be situated in an area that you think is going to grow, but because the rent return is so low, it's actually bleeding you dry of personal cash flows to hold it. Mm. You know, there's a lot of people in that position where they, they might have bought recently during the Sydney boom and have a property that's returning them 2%. And with what they're paying to, to prop that up, waiting for the second wave of growth, which is probably five or 10 years of, they're just going broke slowly trying to get there. There's, there's no point in hanging on to a property like that. So, so first of all, you've got to ask yourself, is it really a dud and should I hang on to it? Now, what I suggest people do is they take those 20 questions that I wrote all those years ago that just make up the basis for the the basic criteria that an area needs to have before you invest in it and go back to that property that you bought and ask the 20 questions again. Because what they'll do is they'll uncover for you whether or not that area actually has the potential to grow in the future and whether it's worthwhile hanging on. You know, there's nothing worse, worse, Peter, you'd know this than selling a property and then having it boom a year mm, later. Mm. And, and Margaret, I would say, on my uh, recollections, that people who um, speculated buying Redfern, say, 20 or 30 years ago, had to wait a long time before the market woke up and said, gee, this place is so close to the CBD and... If, you know, Paddington, Wallara and Darlinghurst is so expensive, how come Redfern isn't a little bit more expensive? And I'm sure people yeah. got rid of their Redfern properties and now really have rued the day considering the sort of the, the regentrification of that of that area. Well, look, you know, the thing is, it might be all right for them to go, well, I should never have gotten rid of that property, I should have hung on to it. But if the circumstances at the time were that they couldn't afford to just live a decent life 
today because they were pouring all of that money into that property, just waiting for that elusive growth, which, as you said, took a long time to come in the end, mm. then in fact it might have been a good idea that they did sell when they did sell because, mm. you know, people like to look at how much a property is gained by, but they don't very often look at how much it costs them to get that gain. Yeah. So if, if it's costing you a, a whole heap of money to get a gain that's only equivalent to what it's just cost you, there's no point in that. Mm. We, we've got to have a property that, that outgrows the investment and gives us a final return on the money that we put in, not one that just finally grows because it's hung in there long enough and we might just have some hope of getting back our money at the rate of inflation. We would be better at keeping our money in the bank. So, you know, the, the, I guess most areas, providing they've got some basic fundamentals, will grow eventually. But if it's going to take 20 years for it, then it could be a dud for now and mm. it might be time to get out. Okay. So, so, yeah. so is there anything, any other more, any other criteria we need to throw at this property before we work out whether it's a dud or not? Look, the other thing, of course, is that it could be bad timing for you and it could be that even though you can see that in the future this this area might grow, you've asked for 20 questions, it looks like there's infrastructure coming up, it looks like population's growing, it looks like there's a lot of families moving into town and families absolutely help an area to grow as long as the employment is there to support those families. But the property is still costing you a great deal of money because the yield is so low, then you may need to decide to sell it anyway to save yourself now. No property is worth hanging in there and going broke over because while we can determine whether an area has a chance of growing in the future, we definitely can't determine when that's going to happen. So you could end up in that red zone situation waiting forever, slowly going broke as you go. Now, if you do sell a dud under those circumstances, always remember the reasons why you sold because you had dire financial consequences or circumstances today that you needed to deal with. And even if that property ends up being a fabulous property, you can't bemoan the fact that you responded to circumstances of the day and you sold because you needed to. Yeah, okay. So let's, okay, we're agreed, you know, with with the brilliant Margaret Lomas and analysis. Yep, we've got a dud. So what do we do? So what we do is get rid of it. <laughs> because there's no point in hanging on to it and just hoping that things are going to get better unless you have the capacity to do so and you don't mind losing money. So you make a decision. If you can afford to keep supporting the property, if you're finding that the particular problems with that property aren't driving you mad, keeping you up at night and causing you to have a bad quality of life today because all you ever do is argue with your husband or wife about it, um, and, and have a terrible life because you've got this dud property in your portfolio, then don't keep it. But but if you think you can put up with all of those things, and even though it's costing you money, it's money that you can spare. You know, you could be Peter Switzer, impossibly wealthy, you know, money that just right away. It doesn't matter if you have a couple of baddies, if you're Margaret Lomas. You know, lowly poor old Margaret Lomas, yeah. yeah, battling <laughs> Margaret Lomas. <laughs> that I would need to definitely get rid of that property. So, so the first thing to do is to work out what's my capacity to hold, and if I do hold and it doesn't turn out the way I'd like it, is that going to kill me? Am I going to really wish I'd sold it? 
you know the kind of person that you are. And if you're the kind of person that suffers from regret, wishes you had acted sooner, then do it. You know, a good example of that is in my own portfolio. And I definitely didn't have guts. But I've recently sold two properties that I held in the Sydney market. Now, I'd had both of them for 10 years. As you would appreciate, mm. they did nothing for the first probably seven of those 10 years. They did exceptionally well in the last three years. And I made the decision just over a year ago that I I was getting out of that market. And some people would think that that was silly because the market had gone so well. But then I thought to myself, I'm actually in a position now where I can get a fabulous price for those properties. And if they go backward, I'm going to feel terrible. Mm. I'll hate that. And I sold them. And now, if the pundits are correct and we've got a general 6% decline in the Sydney market. Well, if I hadn't have sold those properties, that would have cost me somewhere in the realm of about $200,000. And I wouldn't have liked losing that kind of money. Mm. So you have to think about what kind of person you are. If you're the kind of person who will regret hanging on and then only having it perform badly anyway, then, then get rid of it. And if it is dire financial circumstances, you don't have a choice. You need to get rid of it. A lot of people resist selling an investment property, even investment properties that would have done well, because they fear having to pay the capital gains tax. What do you say to those sorts mm. of people? Well, what I say to those people is, first of all, if it's a dud, you probably don't have any capital gains tax. <laughs> You're selling it because it's a dud, and yeah. it probably hasn't grown in value. So that's the first thing. And in fact, for a lot of people, selling a dud, you will actually have a capital loss. Mm. And while we're talking about capital losses, the, the prospect of a capital loss is often one of the factors that prevents people from selling a dot. They can't bear to materialise a loss. They want to hang on, and it's just like having a bad share portfolio. You keep throwing good money after bad. You keep hanging on, hoping that it's going to recover. The recovery may never come, and then it's turned a bad investment into a worse one. So... There are times when you need to cut those losses, and if you realise a capital loss, just remember that you can carry forward a capital loss indefinitely and then offset it against the future capital gain. So a capital loss isn't great to have, but it's not all terrible. It can help you in, in the future against future capital gain. Mm. But if you are selling and you do have a capital gains tax bill to pay, always remember the reason you're selling it. I'm not saying sell a dud just because you feel like it. I'm saying sell a dud if your circumstances are that you can't really hang on to it and live a good life today. Under those circumstances, you just got to cop it. Capital gains tax is a tax, and mm. it's there. And you know, move to the Canary Islands or the Caymans or wherever if you don't want to pay tax. Yeah, I, yeah. The problem of that is that in places like uh, where there are tax dodges, the the value of properties are very, very high, and mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot harder to make money out of property in those areas. Everybody <laughs> wants to live there, and the people who live there invariably have a lot of money. And look, okay, <laughs> so true. let's go and analyse why people buy duds in the first place, because mm. at the core of it is um, a lack of foresight, a lack of training when it comes to being able to pick a good property. And so I guess let's turn, turn the whole thing on its ear and let's get a little bit more positive. What should people know when they go looking for an investment property? Okay, so the first thing that they need to know is that unlike shares or managed funds where you have a chance of finding 
a good advisor who knows what they're talking about, who can help you put together a good portfolio that you know that performs pretty well for you and makes you money. The good majority of people who call themselves property investment advisors actually don't have that capacity and there is something in it for them, which is why they're in it. Mm. So the good majority of property investment advisors are actually people who are selling you a property. And if it were shares, they'd be breaking the law because they'd be acting on both sides of the transaction. Mm. They'd be advising you and selling to you at the same time. So, and taking a commission along the way, often from both sides, a commission from the developer and a a payment or a fee from the person they're giving the advice to. Now, under those circumstances, that person has a set number of properties that they've gotten. They've probably taken them on board because they get a good commission from the developer. There's literally no correlation between that property being a good investment and it satisfying your needs for the type of investment, the type of growth you need, the type of cash flow you need. That advisor just happens to have that property on his books and he's going to sell it to you and, and, ex- and explain to you how wonderful it is and all the great benefits of the area, but not think for one moment whether or not your particular time on your own investment horizon is suitable for that property or ever would be. So that's the first reason why people end up with duds. They list, they hand over the job to somebody just expecting that it's going to be like the financial planning industry, and it's not. Mm. It's also completely unregulated. So if you are ripped off by one of those people, there's nothing you can, virtually nothing you can do about it. There's no one who can help you. There's no one who can protect you. So, Margaret, really, we are running out of time. So I think probably the, the best thing people should do is go to your website and learn what you can do to help people get property smart when it comes to looking for investment property. Would you, would you agree <laughs> look, with that advice? Yeah, look, they should, get, they should go to mypropertytv.com.au because every Tuesday night at 6 and then on demand all week, we do a show which is free to watch and it has a lot of property education and all the best experts from around the country will come and appear on that show with me. But more importantly, it is that education that's important. Hmm. And the biggest danger is this. We all lead busy lives and everybody says, I'm too busy to do that. I just want to hand it over to an expert to help me do this right. There are very few real independent experts in the property world. So the chances of you going awry with that thinking are probably 90%. Uh, You know, a great Mm. chance of it all turning out badly for you. You must become educated. You know, do as much free stuff as you can. Learn as much as you can. Listen to the right kinds of experts. And at the end of the day, ask the question, what's in this for you? Are you making any kind of commission out of this recommendation? And if so, I'd run a mile. Okay, Margaret, thanks for joining us. As always, great insights. You're welcome. Thank you. That's Margaret Lomas from Destiny Financial. And coming up after the break, we've got Ross Walker, Dr. Ross Walker. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. 
Yes, and as I always say, when it comes to Switzer home loans, that rate that um, that very um, um, very urgent sounding woman um, was talking about, 3.85%, that is both our headline rate and our comparison rate because there's no difference between the headline rate and the comparison rate. And that's something you should always remember when you go for a loan, always ask the lender, what is the comparison rate? Because that adds in all the extra fees and charges. Okay, let's catch up with Dr. Ross Walker, who had a fantastic video on Weekend Switzer over the weekend uh, in his little special called The Checkup. And he looks at the five things that we should really embrace to, to deal with the people around us in a better kind of way, so it's actually physically good for you, not just mentally, but physically uh, good for you as well. And we're going to go through those five factors with Ross right now. So, Ross, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Pete. Now, on Weekend Switzer, you had a fantastic video about um, the five things people need to, to get across. What are these five things, and why do we need to get across them? Okay, well, the first thing... To me, to me, it's really important here. And we're talking about our external relationships. The first thing we've been to told about for years is the importance of communication. And you remember years ago, that guy, uh, John Gray, wrote the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Yeah. And the, the problem with that is when men have a problem, they just want to go in their cave and be left alone, their cave being their study or their shed. Whereas when we women have a problem, they want to talk about it. And all they want to do is, is for, for us males to listen to what they're saying. They don't need a solution. Mm. But how many times does a man say, oh, what you should be doing is blah, blah, blah. They don't want to hear that. <laughs> it's dangerous too. It's so dangerous it's to say dangerous. that. It's dangerous. Don't give advice. All you've got to do is say, that's horrible. I can hear what you're saying. They want to be understood. And I'm not being patronising here. No. I'm just saying our needs are completely different from a woman's needs. So, so the importance of learning good communication skills, whether, whether it's with your partner, whether it's with your friends, whether it's in a business situation, communication is vital. And we've been speaking about this for years, but it's really important people don't forget the vital importance of communication. So that's oh, number one. Okay, now before you go to number two, you yep. being a doctor and, and being a scientist as well, why yeah. do you know, many women just want to be able to my, my, my wife was like, I just need to vent. I just need to get it out. Mm. Why don't mm. we men have to vent and get it out? Or maybe should we, but we've been culturally told to suppress it and it's really bad for us? Well, no, you, you see, without wishing to, to not be politically correct and whatever, mm. men are different to women. And, the, and oh. the reason is, I think, biologic. And I don't think, and people have to start accepting this stuff rather than getting caught up in all this political correct nonsense. Yeah. We are different. And as far as our biology goes, we were biolog biologically primed to be hunter hunters, yeah. whereas women were biologically primed to be the nurturers and the gatherers. That's just how biology is. Get over it if you don't like it. Yeah. And so, so as a hunter, you're focused on a solution. The solution is, is, to, is to get that animal so you can kill it, so your family can eat. Whereas... What, what does the mother have to do? The mother has to watch the, the children to make sure they don't fall off a cliff and are not taken by some wild animal. And the, the woman's always looking, vigilant and always looking for things to happen. So when something goes wrong, they feel guilty about something going wrong and they need to, they need to get it out, that horrible guilt they're feeling or someone's driven them nuts. They need to speak to people about it and they just need to vent. They don't need a solution, whereas mm. all we need is to find that beast. Yeah. So I, I think it's biologic. Okay. I, I really think it's biologic. But you're going to have to explain something that a lot of our listeners would not know, but I know. 
you are not prepared to go hunting at Bunnings, but your wonderful wife is. She does the manly oh. thing. She goes to Bunnings, and you stay around playing your guitar and reading books. That's right. My, my wife has a power drill. What does that tell you? And I, I go into a Bunnings hardware store. I have a panic attack. No, no. But I do have a cave. My cave is my study. I'm sitting in it right now as we as we speak. So, so yeah. I, I don't I don't do the usual manly things like go to Bunnings and, and hammer those. What are those sharp things you're hammering the wood called? Um, no, nails. Nails. I think. Yeah. yeah. No, no, and I don't don't do any of that stuff. And my wife's really good at that stuff. But mind you, she's still, as you know, drop dead beautiful and extremely feminine. So there you go. Okay, right. Let's go to the next one before we get into more trouble. Well, the next the next one is differences, and here's the problem: we 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 need to learn to respect the differences in this world. And one of the big issues comes where people can't respect the differences, and and we see this in terms of race, in terms of what we're talking about with with uh, the sexual sexual differences and, and even the fact that people have different sexual orientations. I mean, it's 2018. Can we get over this stuff? I mean, we, we've just we've just got to be able to say, yeah, you, you might have a different skin colour to me, but who cares? If you're a good person, who cares Who cares what you are or, or what you think? I respect you. To, I respect your right to think how you want to think as long as you respect my right to think how I want to think as well, which is the problem, really, because... Uh, a, a lot of people on one side of, say, the political fence, they're bullies because people who sit on the more conservative side of the political fence get bullied by not having the same leftist views as some people have. I think we just have to respect our, the right to do that. And I think a sign of an intelligent person is when they can listen to someone's argument and say, you know what, you're making some good points there. And I, and I, I think across the board, respect people's differences, I think that's vital. So that's number two. Okay, but is there something that goes wrong with you when you have that that kind of view, that when your blood boils when you come across someone who holds a different point of view, is is there any biological negative, negative impacts on you when you overreact to that kind of stuff? Oh, I think there, I think there is, and I think it's important. And, and I'm not suggesting I'm perfect at this either, but but I, th- I think it is important to recognise that with you. And interestingly, again, you, you mentioned my beautiful wife before, but she she's she's done uh, counts, counselling. She's an expert counsellor, and she makes the very very important point: when someone you meet really pushes your buttons, really irritates the life out of you. You've got to say there's something about that person that's in me that I don't like. So often people are reflections of what you have. And so, so I might say to you, doesn't that person drive you nuts? You go, oh, not really. Mm. And they drive me nuts. It's only because there's something about them I don't like in me. Mm. And so you've got to look at people as mirrors of, of the bad things in you you don't like. Um, and and that's that's what you find across the board. So I think, again, mm. looking at looking at those differences is really important. Okay, number three. No, number three is forgiveness. And this, there's a wonderful Buddhist saying that uh, if you want revenge on anyone, dig two graves. So if, and I see this all the time as a doctor, so many people who are still agonizing over stuff that's happened in their life. I've, I've got one patient whose mother died a few years ago and he feels it was from medical negligence, not, not on my part, I've never seen his mother, but he reckons another doctor mismanaged his, his mother's care. He still reads his mother's autopsy report every day. God. Now, until he can forgive and move on, it's just affecting his health. He can't bring his mother back. So, so one of the most healing things you can do for you, 
not for the perpetrator of your trauma, is to forgive and move on. So forgiveness is incredibly healing, and I think one of the most healing things we can do. That's number three. Mm. So number four, yep. and, and, and this is, I think this is really important as well. There is no person on the planet who is more important than anyone else. We're all in this together, and we have to learn to value other people's positions, no matter what they are, because my attitude, Pete, to all this is we're all servants. We're all here to serve. You go through your life with the attitude, how may I serve? How can I make your life better? I give a really simple example when I, I spoke on Weekend Switzer last weekend is you're in a restaurant and a fellow human being called a waiter or a waitress comes to pick up your plate. Does it really hurt for you to pick it up, turn to the person, give it to them and say thank you rather than leaning all over you when you're in the middle of a conversation? I, I, I just think it's, it's common courtesy to other people to show that you respect uh, their position, you respect what they're doing for you and, you're, and we're all servants. So we're all just here to serve. So that, that's number four. And number five, I, I, and I think this is really important, is the relationship you have with your primary partner, the most important person in your life. And I spoke about a 75-year study out of Harvard last year that showed the, the one key to health and happiness, the one key is to have someone else in your life who loves and cares for you, who you love and care for. I think it's so important to realize that, that that primary person, what, what I say to the, 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 the group of people who'll be standing around your bed when you have your heart attack, the group of people who'll be crying at your funeral, because if you don't put effort into those people and don't respect what they do and show them the love and care they deserve, they probably won't be standing around your bed when you have your heart attack or crying at your funeral. Mm. And your argument is that you probably had that heart attack a lot earlier than you should have. Oh, there's no, there's no doubt whatsoever that um, that people who are lonely, people who don't feel that connection with with other people, especially with with your primary partner and your family, people who don't feel that have much more disease than people who do feel a very, very strong connection. And I've often seen that in in families where somebody has a very bad marriage or divorced, whereas someone else had a very happy marriage. And often you see the sicknesses in the people who've been through the divorce and the, the unhappy marriage. Now, I'm not suggesting that happy people don't get sick. And I'm not suggesting that, that's, that unhappy people always get sick. I'm just saying there's a greater risk in the people who are unhappy and lonely and don't have good relationships with people as opposed to people who do have good relationships. All right, Ross, great advice. Um, I, I am going to bring up some of these great points with you when you discuss politics. I won't reveal to my audience <laughs> your, your particular preferences, but you sometimes can be a little bit unfair on your own criteria. But, that's, well, but that just shows that you're yeah. not God. You are actually a normal no. human being. And can I say my attitude to Australian politics is dumb and dumber. <laughs> I won't say who I think's which, but I think you can probably guess who I'm referring. Okay, Ross, <laughs> Ross Walker. Dr. Ross Walker, thanks for joining us on the show. Talk to you soon, mate. Well, that, of course, was Dr. Ross Walker. He's a, a famous cardiologist on TV and radio and, of course, on the Switzer website as well as Weekend Switzer as well. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Switzer Show. I look forward to talking to you next week. Um, when I say my colleague, Paul Rickard, will be back. And don't forget, there's a lot of great stuff on our website, switzer.com.au. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, the handle is at Peter Switzer, and that often gives you a great alert to some of the things I'm really cranky about that I want to change each morning when I get up and read the newspapers and go to the websites. Thanks for joining us again. I'll talk to you next week.